you would uh, remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 29 through 54 of Luke chapter 11. The words are also printed in your bulletins. Uh, because this is a longer passage, uh, I'm going to be reading uh, through verse uh, 40, uh, 44, and then we'll pick up 45 through the end uh, later on in the sermon. So I'll be reading Luke 11, starting at verse 29. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, it will be holy light, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. And as you do, if you would please bow your heads and pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. So as a father with young children, I get to read a lot of children's books. And one of the books that we have enjoyed is a book by R.C. Sproul. And he wrote a number of children's books. And one of them is called The Priest 
with the dirty clothes. Uh, if you don't have it for your children, I highly recommend it. It's very good. Um, but the story goes like this. There's a new priest. He's very excited uh, because he has, um, he, he has been ordained as a priest. And uh, after a while, he gets a, um, an invitation to come before the king to give his first sermon there. But on his way to the palace, as he is riding on horseback, his clothes get splashed with mud. He actually, I believe he gets thrown off his horse. He lands in the mud, and his clothes are filthy. Obviously, he's embarrassed, but he doesn't have a change of clothes, and the king is expecting him. So he goes to the courtyard of the king. He is ridiculed by the people there. Uh, the king is a gracious king, but he is very disappointed. And he says, I'm sorry, um, but, you have, but you cannot give your sermon in such dirty clothes. So he invites him back later. And during the, the time that he is away, he tries as hard as he can to desperately get his clothes clean. But whatever he tries, it does not work. Finally, he asks advice and he is told to go to the prince who tells him to once again go before the king and that he would take care of it. So the, the priest nervously again goes before the king in his dirty clothes. And the king asks him what he is doing there in these, in these uh, filthy clothes. And at that moment, the, priest, uh, the, the prince walks in. The priest doesn't realize that the prince is obviously the son of the king. And what the prince does is he takes off his clothes. He exchanges with the priest. And he gives his clothes, which will never go dirty, to the priest so that he can have clean clothes. Now this is an obvious illustration of what Christ has done for us. R.C. Sproul has done a great job at communicating to children the concept of imputed righteousness. So if you're looking for a children's book where you can teach them the imputation of righteousness, R.C. Sproul has done it, and he has done it in a beautiful way. I uh, highly recommend the book. God has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we'll talk later on about the imputation of righteousness. But God has revealed himself to us. But what happens is that we often demand more. God reveals our unbelief and our hypocrisy to us. And instead of demanding more from God, we should trust in his revelation of himself through the gospel. So Luke begins our passage this morning in verse 29. Uh, with the crowds that are increasing around Jesus. And Jesus calls out the crowds and he says, this is an evil generation. Jesus is not known for pulling punches. He says things as they are. And he knows that the people are wanting a sign. They're wanting to see something spectacular from Jesus. It's as if they're saying to him, you know, Jesus, we would believe you if. And fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill in there. It's as if he hasn't done enough already. 
How many times in the book of Luke, as we've gone through it, have we seen him performing miracles? Almost every chapter, Jesus is doing something spectacular. But for them, it's not enough. They want a sign. But Jesus says, you know what? No sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah, one that has already been given. And he actually mentions the sign of Jonah, and he brings in the queen of the south as well. So obviously we know the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is uh, called by God to go to Nineveh. And instead of going to Nineveh, what does he do? He heads in the exact opposite direction. And so the storm comes up in the boat. Jonah uh, is tossed overboard by the sailors. And he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Uh, this is an obvious allusion to Jesus, what will happen to him. Uh, his spending three days and three nights uh, in the tomb only to be resurrected. Jonah then goes and preaches the gospel to the city of Nineveh. And what does God do? An amazing repentance just floods over the city of Nineveh. Uh, Jesus also mentions the queen of the south here. This is the queen of Sheba that comes and visits Solomon. She comes to Solomon seeking truth, and she finds it. So what Jesus is saying here is that these two pagans, the city of Nineveh, this queen of the south, they have believed the gospel through lesser signs. Jonah is not as great as Jesus. Solomon in all of his splendor is not even as great as Jesus. And they have believed. Yet the generation that Jesus is, uh, is ministering to, they have Jesus himself. And yet they do not believe. Now Jesus continues with this brief parable about the light, the lamp. And what he is saying here is that God has put the light of Christ clearly on display. He hasn't hidden it in a cellar. He hasn't covered it with a bowl. It is clearly displayed, not hidden. And what Jesus is saying is this, if if you are not able to see the light, it is because your eyes are not healthy. The problem lies not with God. The problem lies within us. So what did it mean for this generation that Jesus was talking to then? A vast majority of the people in Jesus' day weren't willing to see the signs that were in plain sight, right? of their very eyes. You know, the San Francisco Giants won the World Series this past week, and as a big baseball fan, uh, I enjoyed uh, following that World Series. I was disappointed the Royals did not win, but that is okay. But if uh, imagine this situation, where it would be like going to the Giants after they have just won the World Series and say, you know what, I want you to show me how good of a team that you guys are. They just proved it. They've won the World Series. It's obvious that they are a good team. We shouldn't demand them uh, to display their greatness to us. They have already done it. The demand for a sign really was just an excuse for this generation's unbelief. In reality, nothing was going to be good for them. If what Jesus had done already didn't show them that who Jesus was, Nothing, not even the most spectacular thing, uh, would be good enough for them. If Jesus would have given them a sign, they probably would have wanted more. 
And because he didn't give them a sign, then they had the opportunity to say, well, you know what, he didn't give us a sign, I guess he is not the one. In their demand for the sign, what they're doing is acting as hypocrites. And we're going to dive into this uh, concept of hypocrisy even more uh, in the next uh, section. They don't really want a sign. They just want to be entertained. They want to see something spectacular. Or they want an excuse to discredit Jesus. You know what? He won't give us a sign. He's not the one. They have been given all that they needed, and they still don't believe. Another sign is not going to change that. Well, what does this mean for us today? I think it's safe to say that we desire God to reveal himself to us. We desire to see signs of God's goodness, of his grace to us. But the question is, are we willing to accept how God has revealed himself to us? Now, we talk about God's revelation in two ways. We talk about his general revelation through creation, through the things that he has made. Um, just look at the sunrise. If you saw it this morning, it was gorgeous. There was pinks and purples. Um, if you study anatomy, uh, my, my wife uh, just this past week went through one of her old anatomy books uh, to look up something, and we just marveled at how God has made us. It's incredible, the things uh, that go on inside of our body. Uh, our Creator is spectacular. Uh, but He's also revealed Himself to us through His Word in a very special way. And He has given us everything that we need to know Him and to understand the Gospel. We have it all. But I know that there are times in our lives that are a struggle. Just because God has clearly revealed Himself to us, that doesn't mean that the Christian life is all roses. It's not all skipping through fields of flowers with Jesus. It's difficult. Sometimes God feels distant, and we pray, you know, God, where are you? Or sometimes we feel like God doesn't care about us and we say to God, God, do you love me? Or sometimes we feel like life is just breaking apart at the seams and we think, God, why are you letting this happen? Can't you do anything? But God has revealed the answer to these questions in his word. There may be times where we struggle to see the answers and we don't see clearly but as we look back on difficult times in our lives, we will always see that God was there the whole time. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I am with you. He says that while you were still a sinner, I loved you. And I sent my son to die for you. He tells us that my grace is sufficient for you. I've begun a good work in you, and I will see it through to completion. It's like that old Footprints poem, poem that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, that when we look back on our lives, those difficult times, we realize that God's leading us. He is. He is there. He is always with us, and he has revealed himself to us. As Jesus continues here, he is invited to the home of a Pharisee. And Jesus, he doesn't discriminate against people. He constantly railed on the Pharisees 
but he had no problem accepting an invitation from them to dine with them. But when he does, he does something very offensive to them, whether he did this on purpose or whether uh, whether he didn't. Um, he, ref- he did not wash his hands before the meal. He commits a cultural faux pas. Now, in the time of Christ, the Pharisees equated the ceremonial law uh, with godliness, with holiness, with God's laws. Uh, today, it would have been just a little embarrassing. You know, well, Jesus forgot to wash his hands. Um, but the Pharisees equate this with sin. They think that Jesus is sinning at this point because he's not following the ceremonial law. And Luke says that the Pharisees are just astonished. They're just taken aback that Jesus would, would do this. Um, and they think that Jesus is being hypocritical because a great prophet would obviously follow the law. Well, they think he would follow their law. Uh, but Jesus turns the table on them and he points out the, hop- the hypocrisy in their life. Now, we're not going to spend a long time this morning about uh, pointing out what hypocrisy is. Uh, I don't need to do that because I think if we were honest with ourselves, we know what it is because we're so good at it, uh, myself included. But Jesus does make a couple of points about how hypocrisy reveals itself here. It reveals itself when we're more concerned with how we look on the outside than our inside and the condition of our hearts. Hypocrisy is placing man's laws above God's laws. Hypocrisy is about desiring to be so spiritual that other people will see us and praise us rather than praising God. And Jesus ends his little sermon here uh, by calling the Pharisees unmarked graves. So according to the law of Moses, if you came into contact with death, uh, you were unclean. So if you came into contact with a dead body or in a graveyard, you are considered unclean, uh, if you, even if that happened to you unknowingly, uh, if you were not aware of what was happening. So in terms of the Pharisees, what they were doing here was wrong on multiple levels. Not only were they creating hypocrisy in their own lives and the, uh, having an effect in their own hearts, but it was also leading other people astray unknowingly. It was like people were coming across these unmarked graves and becoming unclean without them knowing it. Now, when I was reading it this past week, this really sounded alarm bells in my heart. Because we know how hypocrisy affects us. But do we always realize how much our own hypocrisy is having an effect on the ones around us? Parents, it is very easy to say to our children, now do as I say, not as I do. Now we often don't just say those words so blatantly, but we often, in the way that we act, say this. Uh, We say one thing, but then we ourselves do another. Um, I was really convicted of this this past week when I said at the top of my lungs to my children for them to stop yelling at each other. Does that make sense? Stop yelling. No, of course not. Well, Daddy, what are you doing? Um, 
honestly, sometimes you have to get to that point. And I understand that as a parent. Sometimes you got to rise above the noise. Um, but what I found is that when I am actually quiet with my children, um, and I'm able to be in that point, that they understand, that they listen, and they don't see my hypocrisy. Because our children listen to us, but they see what we do. And that makes a huge impact on their lives. They follow our lead and our example. They're smart. They're intuitive. They can spot hypocrisy a mile away. And their hypocrisy detector only gets stronger as they get older. Um, So I encourage you parents, be willing to talk to your kids about your own hypocrisy. Man, that's tough. But as parents, we need to be so humble as to even accept critique from our own children. Because we're all hypocrites. We all are. So we might as well be humble, admit the areas that we sin, and talk about the struggles that we have with our children. I think this is one of the things that is maybe the most difficult as a parent Uh, But one of the things that is so necessary as we build relationships with our children is being able to talk about our own struggles. Not only will your children appreciate it, but it also gives parents opportunities to share how the gospel overcomes sin in our own lives and how we can point our own children to Christ. Because the only cure for hypocrisy is the gospel. The only cure for hypocrisy is Christ. The cure for hypocrisy is seeing the signs that God has revealed to us, seeing them with eyes of faith and believing them. Because in our hypocrisy, we feel that we have to be better than we actually are. So we show off this fake righteousness or this fake goodness, hoping that it will work. But the gospel tells us that we're not good that no amount of faking it will ever be good enough. So God tells us to stop. To stop faking it. Stop being hypocritical. To simply admit who we are through our confession of sin and to cling to Christ in faith. The amazing thing about the Gospel is that Jesus didn't die because we are so righteous. He didn't die because we are so lovely. He didn't say, oh, they are really good people. It would be my pleasure to die for people like that. Instead, he died to make us righteous. He died to make us lovely. He saw us in our filth, in our rottenness, and because of his love for his Father in heaven, he laid down his life for us. So this good news allows us to lay aside our hypocrisy, our trying to be good, to make ourselves look better than we are, because there's no point. God knows our filth, our rottenness, and he has loved us through Christ. But just because God loves us through Christ doesn't mean that he's not going to do the hard work in our lives as the Pharisees quickly found out. I'm going to finish reading our passage from this morning, starting at 
starting at verse 45. It says, One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and consent the deeds of your fathers, for they killed him, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So those who are there saying, Jesus, these things are offensive. You're insulting us. And what does Jesus do? In a sense, he says, you think that's offensive? Well, I've got a few more things that I need to say to you. So you think this is insulting? Well, let me point out the depth of your sin. But in doing this, we need to understand that Jesus is doing this out of love. The Pharisees failed to see the truth of their own hypocrisy. They were insulted by Jesus because he pointed it out. And honestly, sometimes the truth hurts. It hurts in our lives. But Jesus isn't insulting them simply because he could. He isn't rubbing salt in the wound. He's actually loving them because he's pointing out the error in their lives. And he's pointing out their need for a savior. They think they're good in themselves, but they're not. Jesus is pointing out their need for him. And what does Jesus do later on in his life? Not only does he point out their sin, but he provides the rescue for it. And this is the thing that they simply can't see. Not only does Jesus point out the sin, but he offers himself as the solution. He loves them. He shows them their need for a Savior, and He offers Himself as that Savior. So sometimes the truth in our own life hurts as well. Just like the Pharisees, Jesus has a list of woes against us. But when we realize our sin, we need to realize that we are hypocrites And unlike the Pharisees, we need to repent. Jesus says to us, Mike, you're a hypocrite. You're a liar, you're a thief, you're an adulterer. You're an idol worshiper and a gossip and a cheat. But Jesus says, I died for hypocrites. I died for liars and for thieves and for adulterers. Jesus died for idol worshipers and for gossips and for cheats. Jesus died for us. And as we come to the table this morning, we have a visual sign of what Christ has done for us. 
The Lord's Supper is a visible sign that God has given to us to reveal Himself to us. The bread and the wine are clear representations of Christ's body and His blood, which have been broken and shed for us. And in the Lord's Supper, God is revealing His love to us, hypocritical sinners. So as we partake of the sacrament this morning, let us pray that the Holy Spirit will enlighten our eyes through faith, that we will see this light that God has clearly displayed to us, that we will see the light of Christ shining through this meal.